Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Alexis Krasilovsky was educated at Smith and Yale with an MFA from California Institute of the Arts. Her books include Great Adaptations, Screenwriting, and Global Storytelling. And under the pseudonym Alexis Raphael, the novel Sex and the Cyborg Goddess, Shooting Women Behind the Camera Around the World, co-authored by Harriet Margolis, Alexis, and Julia Stein. Alexis is also the author of Women Behind the Camera, Conversations with Camera Women. She directed the global documentary feature, Women Behind the Camera, which won four Best Documentary Awards. A second global documentary, Let Them Eat Cake, about the pleasures and perils of pastries, won Best Documentary Feature at the Paris Independent Film Festival. Alexis lives in L.A., where she is a professor of screenwriting and media theory and criticism at Cal State University, Northridge. She's also a member of the Writers Guild of America West. And Carol, I understand Alexis won your Roy Dean film grant for her film, Women Behind the Camera. Yes, Claire, and we're very proud to be associated with Alexis. Her contributions to art through her films and her books are incredibly important to all of us. And what a joy it must be for students to get to study with Alexis. We sincerely thank you for joining us, Alexis. Well, thank you, Carol. It's really a pleasure and a great honor to speak with you again. Well, we want to cover a lot today. First, your brilliant new novel, Sex and the Cyborg Goddess, and we want to cover advice for filmmakers on book writing and your personal experience as a filmmaker self-publishing. So let's start with the first book you wrote. Tell us what inspired you to write it. Well, it was exciting to be a pioneer in the 1970s. Uh, I was one of the first women co-eds at Yale, and I thought that being one of the first women cinematographers to join the Cameron Union would be just as much of a challenge as well as a whole lot of fun. And when I first came to Hollywood, I managed to get myself into the lesser of the two Cameron Unions that existed back then. But all that Nabit's business administrator wanted to know was, instead of what kind of 16-millimeter, 35-millimeter video cameras did I know how to operate, he just wanted to know how tall I was and was I taller than he was. And I'd, I'd heard of another camerawoman in that union, Kathy Zoitlin, and for her I heard about an association of professional camerawomen that was called Behind the Lens, and it had been founded by the first woman to join the American Society of Cinematographers, Brianne Murphy. Well, I couldn't make a living as a camerawoman myself. It, it was much easier being a director, uh, but I was amazed at the tenacity and the courage of those camera women who managed to succeed in such a super male-dominated field and often a hostile field. And some of them had faced sexual harassment. 
sex discrimination, and, and still managed to persevere. So I felt that those stories and courage had to be told. Wonderful. So how did you manage your time to include the book in your schedule? Did the book take precedent over any other art form? Well, back in the early 90s when I was interviewing camera women in L.A. and New York and San Francisco for that first book, Women Behind the Camera, I was an assistant professor with a four-course teaching load. I was up for tenure, and I was highly motivated to complete a book, no matter how much it interfered with the schedule because I was also a single mother. I belonged to a babysitting co-op, and it rotated to take care of seven or eight kids once a week. And so when it wasn't my turn to babysit, I used some of that time to move forward on writing the book. And for two weeks a year, my son would go visit his grandparents or his father, and that, too, became writing time. Uh, I, I Usually I could conduct interviews when my son was in school, but... Once when he was a toddler, I brought him with me, and I turned around in the middle of, of, of an interview with a really important camerawoman to discover that he was having, my son was having this great time unraveling the camerawoman's cassette tape. <laughs> oh, no. So, overall, progress was slow. It took me nine years to finish writing that book. Oh, my goodness. Oh, did you have a publisher when you wrote the book? Uh, yes, Prager, which is part of Greenwood Publishing Group out of Westport, Connecticut. And how did you market the book? Well, fortunately, Prager and Greenwood did most of the marketing, and it was one of their most successful books. Um, when the film version came out in 2007, also called Women Behind the Camera, there was some cross-marketing through our website, womenbehindthecamera.com. And where can people buy this? Well, there's a link to... Greenwood Publishing Group on the books page of womenbehindthecamera.com, and it's also available through Amazon. Great. So now, what advice do you have for filmmakers who want to write a book? Well, it's often a really good idea to write a book first, because not only does it help you solidify your ideas, but if you get the book published first, then your readership becomes your potential audience for the movie. And if it's a women's talk topic, uh, that's especially significant because women comprise something like 75% of the readership of novels, last I heard. And even though the film industry is still very male-dominated in terms of who decides what gets produced and what doesn't, the men and women who greenlight projects have always known the value of adapting books to film, and they're finally recognizing that it can also be very good business to produce a film that's based on a book written by and for women. Right. Absolutely great idea. Now, what was your second book? Well, if you don't count, um, I, I, I wrote two poetry books, uh, one called Some Women Writers Kill Themselves, and the other called Some Men. If you don't count poetry, then my second book was a co-authored book called Shooting Women Behind the Camera Around the World, which was co-authored by Harriet Margolis, me, and Julia Stein. And to, to talk about that book a little bit, by, by, I thought that by going global with the subject of camera women, whom in my first book I'd only interviewed camera women in Hollywood and New York and San Francisco, I thought that going global we could pressure Hollywood to change its patterns of discrimination for the better as compared to how women in film um, uh, fared in places like Sweden and France. 
it was also important to write about how camera women were dealing with sex discrimination and sex, sex, sexual harassment, which are included in that book. And did you have a publisher for it? Oh, yeah. We were fortunate that Intellect Press in the U.K. Uh, took an interest in this uh, book about camera women, and Intellect Press is affiliated with the University of Chicago Press in the U.S. And And marketing for this book, how did that happen? Well, by the time the book came out in 2015, we had two films, Women Behind the Camera, on which the book was originally based, and a shorter version called uh, Shooting Women, which is distributed through Women Make Movies. So people who saw the films and wanted to know more about it could read the book. Right. I think also in terms of marketing, I might add that, you know, it'll charge a pretty hefty academic price for the book, but if people go online and look for the e-book or the Kindle, it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> okay, so where can they buy the book? Oh, well, it's it's available um, in, in the U.S. through University of Chicago Press and uh, Intellect in the U.K. and also Amazon. And um, the e-book and Kindle editions are also available online. And um, in, in an era of out-of-bounds gun violence, though, I have to say, we were really <laughs> that we came up with this, what we thought at the time was a clever title, Shooting Women. I mean, now it just makes me my skin crawl. So the updated version that we're working on now is going to be renamed um, Women Behind the Camera, a History, a hi- sorry, uh, Women Behind the Camera, a History of Camera Women Around the World. Okay. And the- <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say that the the version that's the the new kind of update version uh, adds two new co-authors to Harriet Margolis, uh, Julia Stein, and myself. One of them is Heidi Honeycutt, um, who's famous for directing the Ethereum Film Festival, and she's interviewing Oscar nominee Rachel Morrison and other Hollywood camera women. And we also have on board Anna Paula Pancala, who's an associate professor at Pelotas Federal University in Brazil, and she's interviewing a new generation of South American camera women. So we're still uh, staying very global with the project. It, it, it takes a while for to, to an update a global study, though, so it might take a couple of years to get this second global edition out. And, and meanwhile, I'm hoping that the 2015 version will be useful to uh, women who are pursuing um, a career in camera work or would like to be camera women, and also to people who are involved in women's and, and gender studies in general. I'm sure it is good for them. So now let's talk about the new novel, Sex and the Cyborg Goddess. May I ask you why you used the pseudonym of Alexis Raphael? Well, my father's still alive, and I love my father. I wish him a very long life. I mean no disrespect with this work of fiction, but I hope he's not listening to this broadcast. Uh because there are many super erotic passages in the book that really have no place in my family's ears, uh, let alone on the radio. Right. This is an incredible book. I mean, it's a book you cannot put down. And I want to read the back of the book synopsis. It says, Anna arrives at Yale just as it's going co-ed. Despite the sexual revolution, Anna's an idiot when it comes to men. After sexual assault upstages graduation, Anna hits the road but carries the long-term consequences with her as she travels on to Germany and India, determined to become a filmmaker. 
so please tell us what was the inspiration for this wonderful novel. Well, back in the late 70s, I was making a 35-millimeter pro-choice hologram. And my experiences with love in the workplace and sexual assault at that time were so complex that I began to write as a way of making sense out of my life and, and as a way of surviving the experience. So it really was a Me Too novel before the Me Too movement uh, existed. And as I dug deeper into writing fiction, I studied feminist authors like Jean Reese and the women writers of ancient Japan, such as Murasaki Shikibu and Seishou Nagan, and Reese and Shikibu and Shonagon and, and others inspired me to, to want to join a centuries-old investigation of love and eroticism and sexual harassment from a female perspective. Wow. So now, tell us about Anna, the main character in Sex and Sci, in this book, Sex and the Cyborg Goddess. She is something else. Well, there's a lot of talk about uh, strong female characters. And although I'm excited that strong female role models are up on the screen, we need them, like Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman. I, I, I deeply believe that there's room for flawed female characters who are anti-heroines, too. Um, if you think of it from cultural perspective, I mean, where would our culture be without Willie Loman and Arthur Miller's The Death of a Salesman or uh, Walter Lee and Lorraine Hansberry's um, A Raisin in the Sun? So I wanted to steer clear of the treatified female characters of chick lit like uh, Bridget Jones. And I feel it's important to seriously examine flawed female characters, characters who are damaged by sexual harassment, who don't necessarily triumph over, adversi uh, over adversity. And also, I'm, I've been a professor teaching film production, and my female students often get A's and they win festi festival awards. But at least until the last couple of years with the Me Too movement, Time's Up, et cetera, my female students couldn't get a deal in Hollywood to direct a film. And I, I became more and more intent on writing a female character whose talent and hard work don't lead to triumph. What happens to these women? Uh, Anna goes to Yale. She aces her courses, but she carries the post-traumatic stress disorder of sexual harassment on a college campus with her as she makes her way into an industry uh, that, at, at least up until right now, has been even more rife with discrimination and abuse of women than college campuses. And what's that pain all about that leads to failure despite our best efforts and expectations? So I wrote Anna for the Me Too Generations, and, and I hope that her existence will help others heal from sexual harassment. I'm sure it will. This is a brilliant book and really deserves a lot of eyes on it. So you really have the time period in the 70s clearly defined, because when I was reading it, I felt like I was back in my New York City office running my film business. Um, is this information from your memory, or is it mostly from your research? Well, first of all, hallelujah to film stock and the mag that track. I remember those New York days. But Sex and the Cyber Goddess is a work of fiction, and it's set against the backdrop of uh, sexual liberation era and the anti-Vietnam protests and Black Panther demonstrations. It's a portrait of a filmmaker as a young woman who isn't going to let sexual harassment stop her. But I am not Anna, and unlike 
the end of this novel, I did let sexual harassment stop me. Uh, I, my solution was to retreat into academia instead of going to bed with the last producer I worked for in Hollywood. <laughs> The books which I wrote while I became a professor became a kind of R&D or research and development for uh, creating the character of Anna as she moves forward through the 1970s and 1980s in L.A. and New York. But some of what Anna experiences did come from my own life. Uh, For example, like Anna, the Yale student, I protested against the war of of the war in Vietnam and Washington, although the real me did not drop acid there. Right. Well, now, please share a few pages of this book with us. I really like the chapter, Ordinary Rape. I mean, what a great title. Uh, and that shows how she was treated by the authorities. Uh, that was that blew me away. Okay, so the the section that I think you were talking about is where Anna has just gone to the lab in New York, speaking of New York labs in the, in the 70s, and, uh, and she's picked up her, her, uh, the footage that's essential for her first film. And um, she's hitchhiking back uh, to Connecticut. Uh, she gives the finger to some really sleazy guy, and then another car stops, uh, a white Mustang. The guy driving was a blonde-haired hippie. I'm heading up 95, he said. Okay, said Anna, climbing in. He was kind of cute, although his car stank of cigarettes. His New New England looks almost matched Phillips. She tossed her backpack into the back seat. Where are you heading? New Haven. Right on, he said. I'm headed for West Haven myself. Ever been there? No, not really, she replied. He pulled a beer can out of a paper bag, guzzled it, and offered her some. How old are you? he asked. Why? Just wondering, sort of, he said. My name's Joe. Anna looked out the window. I'm Marianne, she lied. It was stuffy in his car. I used to go down with my pals to New Haven and crash those Yale mixers, you know, Joe said. You sneak into the colleges and you can drink all the free beer you want to. Oh, I used to go to those mixers, said Anna brightly, taking off Leonard's jacket. What cattle shows. Joe looked at her bare shoulders and stepped on the gas. We'd try to get into girls like you, but you were all just a bunch of snobs. They're just cattle shows, repeated Anna insistently in her lime green party dress. I can't fight these big trucks, said Joe. Got into a fucking mess last spring. Totaled the car. Anna wasn't sure she'd heard him correctly in the din of morning traffic. The whole thing is fucked up. The country's the only place to live, I guess. The cigarette smell was getting to her. If only this window on her side weren't stuck. Can you lay off, he said. Can you just lay the fuck off? I don't have to listen to you swearing at me like that, said Anna indignantly. I'd rather get out and get another ride. Slow down, will you, Marianne? I just can't listen to you bitching anymore, so take it easy. Joe turned on the radio. It was the staple singers. He reached for something under the seat. Then he said, why don't you put your head in my lap? Anna thought he was kidding until she saw the gun pointed at her head. Look, he said, I I don't like using this, so why don't you do what I say? Here, he said, maneuvering the gun to his other hand without losing his grip on the steering wheel. Put your head down like this. He pulled Anna's head to his faded jeans with his free right hand. Her head was pressed against him. 
look, you're making a mistake. I have VD under your dress. Oh, listen, those men I got in the car thought you were a cute guy. You don't have to be doing this with a gun. Why don't you put that thing away? Come on, said Joe. Pull your underpants down. Look, I think you're cute. You don't have to be doing it this way. Pull your pants down. What? Your underpants. Why don't you give me your phone number instead of going to this hassle and we can get together later when my period is gone? Joe was getting upset. Are they down? Come on, answer me. Yes, he sat Anna up, manipulating both girl and car through traffic, his hand in her vagina listening to the music. That's fine, good. That's what I like to see, he said, adding softly, It's been so long since I had a broad. Oh, listen, you're making a mistake, she tried to say. It shocked her that her brains were unable to protect her body. You lying bitch, snarled Joe. You don't really have your period, do you? Anna struggled to get up, her sore elbow hitting the steering wheel. Bitch! Jumbled flashes of a gas station and tollbooths churned past. He slapped her down with the muzzle of the gun. But I'm a human being, too, she tried to say. You can feel my breasts. You can even feel that I'm a human being. She lay passively as he drove through the automatic toll booth in Greenwich. The gun pressed against her head. Approaching the car's cop exit ramp, he said, I'm going to get off so we can find some woods, okay? In a state of panic, Anna thrust herself out of Joe's clothes and slowed down briefly. But she couldn't grab her backpack with her senior project footage before he raced off. She jumped wildly at the navy blue sedan in the next lane, screaming, Help! This guy is driving off with all my film in this car! He tried to rape me! Her whole body shook as she opened the door of the car. You look like a hooker, said the woman in the driver's seat, eyeing the hysterical <laughs> girl in a torn mini-dress. Anna had jumped into the car and slammed the door shut, begging for help from a middle-aged woman wearing plaid slacks with a circle pin on her navy blue jacket over a pink cotton blouse. The woman hesitated for an instant, then hit the gas. They careened after the white Mustang, racing the wrong way down a one-way, tree-lined street. They found themselves skidding over the athletic field of a private school where Philip's sister had once played lacrosse and caught up with Joe as his car crashed into the bleachers. The woman got out of her blue sedan. She went over to Joe, who was unhurt, though his car was totaled. Anna started to rush away down the sidewalk. The footage in his back seat seemed worthless compared to her life and reputation. Hey, you! Don't run off, called the lady, opening her navy blue jacket and exposing a police badge. I didn't do anything, Anna replied hastily, cringing with guilt. Sure you didn't said the lady police officer. I'm Officer Healy. Are you sure you two didn't know each other before this happened? I never saw him before in my life, cried Anna. What would her mother do to her now? Officer Healy asked the two of them, Anna and Joe, to get in the vehicle. You're lucky I just went off duty. I never handled this stuff before, said Healy, placing Anna's backpack in the trunk. She was going to take them down to the station. Joe pleaded his innocence to the back seat. I swear I never did nothing wrong before this. I swear I didn't. I just wanted to help, officer. I don't know what got into me. Three male police officers escorted Anna Freed through the Greenwich police station. Crossing the sterile wax grave floor, she felt as though her body were on trial. Philip's parents lived in Connecticut. They might read about her in the newspaper. Now she would never get to meet them. I don't want to press charges, she said. We're simply trying to establish what happened. Don't worry, said the detective. We won't be giving out any information to the news. 
Things like this happen all the time, said the police chief. Oh, what do you want me to say? He had a gun she held against my head, said Anna. He used his hands to feel me up, and he was planning to rape me. Specifically, what was he doing? asked the police detective. How many gory details do you need, she asked. He was working his finger up my vagina. The policemen looked at each other, then led her to a small, ordinary room. A policewoman with pink plastic eyeglasses smiled at Anna from her grave formica desk. Mrs. Rogers will help you file a formal report, formal report, one of the male officers explained. If you'd like to sit down over here for a few minutes. Miss Anna Freed, uh, spelled F-R-I-E-D, not F-R-E-E-D, alleges to have led into some trouble with a white male age approximately 20 years from who she accepted a ride. They're trying to rape me, Anna interrupted. Joan Healy had returned from the ladies' room, eyeing her colleagues apprehensively over a cup of coffee. She stirred some creamer into her coffee and left the room. Can't get these women libs anymore, the male officer muttered, then turned to Anna Freed. Dear, you don't seem to understand the legal aspect of this. You're maybe a smart girl, but Connecticut law states that if there is no penetration by the male genital organ, there is no rape. Unless we can establish a clear case of intent, the charge will have to be assault with sexual mischief, no matter what you think he intended. He was carrying a gun, she said. The detective interrupted. You're a lucky girl. This officer saved your life, even though she was off duty. Mrs. Roger... Rogers nodded sagely. She seemed sympathetic. Hey, tell John we're going to fix her up a citation, he said sarcastically to an officer bringing in more coffee. He was planning to rape me, she repeated. He was getting off the highway to find some wood so he could do it. Mrs. Rogers busied herself taking notes. But isn't this conjecture on your part? He looked at her day-glow lime green mini dress. What should I have done? Let him do it so you don't prove. The police chief tossed his colleagues a just another hysteric expression and tossed Anna her backpack. Fine. I think we have enough, he said to Anna. We'll let you write it up now, Mrs. Rogers. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, this is just a tiny look into the energy of the 70s when women were not respected. They were totally mistreated, and daily they were told to get married and go have children and stay out of business. I can't tell you how many times I went through that one. Don't, we don't want you in competition with us. Get out of here. So I wonder if any of your experiences during, during the 70s are expressed in this book. Well, like Anna and Sex and the Cyborg Goddess, I was the only cinematographer to film Andy Warhol and his superstars at the opening of his show at the Whitney Museum in New York in 1971. And I hitchhiked to New York, not from New York, but to New York with 16-millimeter footage of Andy Warhol in my backpack as I couldn't afford both the lab bill and the train fare in those days. And the, So the passage that I read just now was largely based on real life. And a great deal of parts two and three of the novel focus on the conflicts of marriage versus making movies. My mother really did, my my real mother, not the fictional mother in the novel, really did accuse me of carrying around for far too long film cans instead of babies. And when I get, (laughs) (laughs) and I felt guilty, believe me, Uh, when I get stoned like Anna, I, I thought, 
of my lover as the spinning image of Ted Hughes uh, in the novel who described as the husband of the dead poet Sylvia Plath who had stuck her head in an oven and she was not striving for perfection. She would leave her films and novels and poems unfinished if only she could fully embrace life. Uh, and and, and, end quote. And, and, and like Anna, I proceeded to analyze the corpse of a relationship, um, a want-to-get-married relationship, by telling the inside story of my cervix using an endoscope. And I think that was actually the first time other than George Lucas where an endoscope had been used for filmmaking, although the historical citation is left out of the novel. I mean, you know, who likes footnotes? Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, this book discusses the politics of the time. It seems very accurate to me. And I would think this may have taken considerable time to research. So share some of these politics with us, please. Well, I, I actually had to take a couple of years working on just on the timeline for the novel. I, at first, I wasn't even sure which protests against the Vietnam War took place when and how the anti-war movement expanded or when the term, quote-unquote, sexual harassment was formally introduced into the lexicon. And sexual politics is woven throughout Part 1, so it was really important to do that. The, the Part 1 is entitled Pillow Book of a Gale Co-Ed. Uh, as Anna starts to keep a journal of her sexual conquest. And I had to go back and reread Kate Millett's uh, seminal book called Sexual Politics, as well as Simone de Beauvoir, uh, The Second Sex, and other feminists whose work we studied as the second wave of feminism came into full force. Um, and later on in the novel, Anna's sociology professor, who's the only feminist instructor she encounters at mostly male Yale, has her keep a diary of whatever happens to her that's gender-related, which was also a lot of work, both then and now. I also, uh, Carol, I had to go back and research the history of the Black Panther movement in order to describe accurately the pro-Panther protests that took place in New Haven, Connecticut in 1970. Um, protests were a lot of fun back then, but so I don't know that I was really all that cognizant of exactly what was what, the place in history of that of that particular protest. But it seems that not only were the Panthers wiped out by the 1980s, but so much of their history was wiped out as well. And today, uh, uh, so many Americans have seen and loved uh, uh, Black Panther. It's a wonderful movie, but very few of my students, maybe, maybe one in a, in a whole classroom of the students, uh, will have even heard about the Black Panther Party and its 1960s platform, which uh, had included demands for education and full employment, decent housing for black people, and an end to police brutality. And these are still relevant issues today, a half century later, and I thought I had to do, the, do it right. Yes, exactly. They were feeding tens of thousands of children every morning a good breakfast. They did a lot of good. So thank you for getting that part in there. It's really important. Now, tell us how the politics of the time are important for the story. Well, for example, Anna losing her virginity to an arch-conservative whom she meets at a get-acquainted meeting of one of Yale's secret societies. Uh, maybe that can be read as a metaphor for the potential submission of our society to Yale-educated conservatives like uh, Bush and uh, now Kavanaugh. Um, George W. Bush was once president of 
Delta Kappa Epsilon, to which Supreme Court Justice nominee uh, Brett Kavanaugh was also belonged. And in the 1980s, uh, Jacob was called, it became infamous for having its pledges march on the Yale campus yelling, no means yes, yes means anal, and other unfunny jokes that can't even be repeated on the air. So no sexual harassment issues didn't go away, and they're obviously rampant now, or we wouldn't be seeing so many women and their supporters marching in pink pussy hats. And part two of my novel explores uh, black and white politics in the South as Anna directs her first documentary, which, um, to, uh, as a job, which tries to investigate the last march of Martin Luther King Jr. and his assassination. And uh, in part three, which is uh, uh, called the, the Talmud of Self-Hatred, um, part three explores post-Holocaust Germany through Anna's relationship to a German film producer while making a film about her Jewish roots. And for those who are patient enough to read the entire novel, uh, from a political perspective, my favorite part is the satirical afterward. Lots of people might just read Sex and the Cyborg Goddess for the Sex, um, the same way that readers of Lolita only read the first part of Nabokov's novel. They they just don't know what they're missing. Um, I, for those who are politically sophisticated, there's a lot more to it than Anna's pillow book. Right. Well, I think you did a marvelous job letting us see this sexual harassment that women live with on a daily basis. And I was really able to relate to Anna immediately. I understood um, her desire to be an equal, that's all she wanted, and her frustration and anger with the zeitgeist of the time. So what was your intent? Well, Carol, I, I mean, words are important, and not, not just on a radio program, but our, sexual language is, is really important when it comes to words. At the time that Anna first experiences rape culture, as a student at Yale, uh, not even the term sexual harassment exists, but her feelings do. And exploring feelings in the context of a time and place are, I believe, what a novel does best. And it was the era of sexual liberation. And Anna has just gotten on the pill. She fervently believes in her right to sexual fulfillment, sexual equality. She isn't aware of any complications. I'm excited by the time I finished the final draft of my novel, um, which was well before the Me Too movement began. The term resistance um, was already central to the climax of of, uh, my story. So, Alexis, what do you want us to take away with us after reading your book? Well, I want readers to find affirmation in their right to pursue consensual sex as well as their right to live without sexual violence. For readers who are part of the Me Too movement, I want my book to provide healing by furthering the discussion about Anna, who's a relatively isolated character, and the young women today who belong to a sisterhood. Well, you had to take a long time away from your films and your teaching at Northridge. So how did you manage to write almost 400 brilliant pages? Well, it took some planning and some despair for that matter. I mean, I I continually marvel at my students being able to crank out 100 pages in a 16-week semester screenwriting course despite holding two jobs to pay for tuition while taking an overload of courses. 
and they inspired me. Uh, they kept me going because I thought if they could do it, I could do it. The the main problem was juggling single motherhood with all of that. And it, I, it's it's interesting that now my son is grown up and he's writing a screenplay while completing his own MFA. And we encourage each other. It just isn't easy for either of us. Well, tell me, who did your edit of the book? Well, my first editor was Harriet Harvey, who just happens to be the mother of uh, the acclaimed documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney. She uh, was married to Reverend William Sloan Coffin, Jr., and I lived in their basement when I first graduated from Yale with nowhere to go, uh, writing one of the earliest chapters of the book under her tutelage. And years later, once I had a full manuscript, I was lucky enough to get feedback from um, the Women in Film past president, um, Molly Gregory, from Dina Metzger, from Julia Stein, Terry Wolverton, and, and others. I, I went through over a dozen drafts and all. Wow. Incredible. Because this is really brilliant. It is truly a page-turner. Uh, did you have a publisher when you wrote this book? Well, I almost had the p- traditional publisher of my dreams. My New York agent at the time, uh, Mary Yost, had it on her desk, and it was addressed to W.W. W. Norton. And sadly, Mary's son discovered my manuscript on this agent's desk when she came down with Alzheimer's. She hadn't mailed it. I, it was just such a heartbreak for me. I, I still think Norton would be the best a traditional publisher for Sex and the Cyborg Goddess, and instead I publish it through Raphael Film, at least for now. Good. That's great, because yeah, you're in charge, and that's you should be. This this is uh, really important. I don't know why yet, but we will know. Um, so tell us how you found the publisher. Well, Raphael Film is actually the film company that I founded um, in 1973 in New York, and then I brought it with me when I moved to Los Angeles. I'd already published uh, chapbooks of poetry by Akiba Shabazz and Geraldine Kudaka, uh, in addition to making films. Oh, how lovely. Now, I understand that you're writing a screenplay for Sex and the Cyborg Goddess, so tell us about this. Well, uh, before embarking on the screenplay, I took time off, uh, which included a research fellowship and a sabbatical, to write a nonfiction book entitled Great Adaptations, Screenwriting, and Global Storytelling. And it was published in New York and London last fall. And being a member of the Writers Guild, I thought, if I just establish myself as an international expert in screenplay adaptation, I'll get a better deal on the screenplay for Sex and the Cyborg Goddess. Uh, I've been speaking about adaptation at CBS Studios, on panels, um, at conference around the L.A. area, and uh, in January I'll be giving a five-day screenplay adaptation workshop at the International Academy of Film and Media in, in Bangladesh. So I'm hoping that this strategy pays off. Because um, I've been teaching screenplay adaptation as a screenwriting professor for over two decades, so you can imagine what a thrill it is to finally, finally sit down at the computer, open up Final Draft, and work, go to work on my own screenplay. I just sit there and I laugh <laughs> and I laugh. I mean, because not all of Sex and Cyborg Goddess is is tragic. 
Oh, this is so much fun. Yes, you. what a great achievement it's been. So now what's the plan for the screenplay? Will you produce it yourself? Uh, yes and no. I'm planning on stopping in Mumbai in December uh, to reconnect with filmmakers that I met on my last projects because the climax of Sex and the Cyber Goddess takes place in India, and I need um, a really good unit director. Um, of course, I would like to be involved in the production to make sure it's a quality film and not catch, um, but I don't want to be the sole producer. Um, fortunately, uh, I mean, through some of the friends that I have and through the Writers Guild and through the Alliance of Women Directors and, and uh, Women in Film, I've met some outstanding producers and directors, and I hope to work with one or more of them to make the best film possible. And, and this is, will this be your first feature film? Um, maybe. It's actually my fourth feature, if you include... Um, documentaries which I've written and directed and it's my second narrative film if you include Blood a film about premenstrual rage narrated by a talking vagina (laughs) okay now what advice can you give filmmakers who want to write a book well first of all when it comes to the details uh, don't take anything for granted I I found this out the hard way several drafts into the process that readers just couldn't picture the optical printers used for making spectacular special effects in the 1980s. I, I had used this equipment in my filmmaking both in New York City and at CalArts, but knowing how to use the equipment and describing it so others can picture it are two different things. And you can't write a tech manual either. So as, as, and as far as the process of writing a novelization goes, I discuss this in my book, Great Adaptations, Screenwriting and Global Storytelling, and usually goes the other way around. First comes the novel or the graphic novel or the musical or the biography or whatever, and then comes the movie or the television series or webisodes, but the morphing is becoming more and more fluid. So my advice would be to go with your passion in terms of choosing which medium comes first. Okay, great. Now, Thanks for sharing your expertise and your incredible wisdom with us. And now let's tell people where they can get your books and your films. Well, my films, Edit the Art World, the one starring Andy Warhol, um, as well as Women Behind the Camera and Let Them in Cake are all on Amazon Video Prime. My books, Women Behind the Camera, Shitting Women, and now Great Adaptations, uh, Screenwriting and Global Storytelling, those are all available through Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, etc. And Sex and the Cyber Goddess is also available on Amazon in paperback, e-books, and audiobook under the name Alexis Raphael. Okay. Now, hopefully we're going to be interviewing in the future and learn about your new book. Um, but it may not be released until 2019, right? Women Behind the Camera, a History of Camera Women Around the World. Uh, right? Well, I, 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 think, I think that's right. Okay. So we, well, Claire and I sincerely thank you for joining us, and we want to wish you a lot of luck with the release of this brilliant book. And I think your idea for... Uh, for moving around town and teaching the adaptation information and then coming out with your script is going to be the perfect path to take uh, 
you may find some producer who can't wait to get their hands on that script, and that would be brilliant to bring in uh, someone who can get you the money and help you make it. Well, right, Carol, thank you so much for that statement of support. I mean, I've, you've been just so wonderfully supportive through the years. And from the Heart has helped so many filmmakers. I really thank you for having me on your show, and I, I hope what I, some of what I said was useful. Oh, it's tremendously useful. We're, I'm going to be quoting you for a long yeah. time, Alexis. Yes. Right. Thank you so much for this kindness. We really appreciate it. And I'm speaking for all the filmmakers, particularly the women filmmakers, who need to hear that tenacity is the backbone of the filmmaker. You just keep going. Don't let it. Don't let the bastards get you down. You just have to keep <laughs> moving. <laughs> okay. Okay, I will. Thank you so much. All right, sweet. Thanks right. a lot. All right. Thank Bye you, for Alexis. now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, and, and Carol, also, and Carol I, also, I, I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners because I just want to tell you how grateful we are for the donations that you have given to support our podcast. Carol and I sincerely thank you for donating at fromtheheartproductions.com, and we urge you to send us your ideas for more shows. Who do you want interviewed? What are some more of the topics and things that you would like covered about filmmaking? Just let us know. Also, please join us next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N, dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.